So, are you in town for shows? We just played a show yesterday. And this is like a this cross... This is the last one for this leg. Yeah, we just did five shows. Yeah. Our East Coast part of our tour was Boston, Philadelphia, D.C., Baltimore, and Brooklyn. It's a pretty intense touring schedule at this point for you guys, right? Um, I guess for us. <laughs> that, you know, I mean, it not did for, not used not to be for a 20 year old, but uh, schedule. Yeah. Um, and then we've got uh, a five week break, and then we do seven shows on the West Coast. Yeah. So is this like, is this all part of a big anniversary push? Is that what's happening right now? Yeah. We wanted, we thought, well, for our, we saw the 25th anniversary coming up of our band, and we thought, Pansy Division should do a tour. Yeah. And we should really make another record. Because we'd been talking about it for a while and not really getting much done on it because there was such a great uh, geographic distance between us. Mm -hmm. Chris is in L.A. I'm in San Francisco. Uh, Joel is in Boston. And um, Luis is in uh, Jackson Heights. So how do you get back together? Like, how does that happen? How do you rehearse? Where do you do well, sure. Okay. Um, you I mean, you we, cover the technical aspect of it. We, um, you know, we make set lists in advance, yeah. decide what we want to play, and then we get together a day or two before hmm. the tour and practice. Uh, the thing that was different about practicing this time was we recorded, we recorded 14 songs for the new album, which is called Quite Contrary. Yeah. And uh, we had only played two of them, three of them live, mm. which is backwards from the way we used to do it. So we kind of had to learn how to play them live. They come out a little differently. Yeah. Uh, so that's what we did before the start of the tour last week. And we'll have another rehearsal day before we go out in November. But um, for the older stuff, we really don't have to do much Practicing, we've been playing some of these songs for almost twenty-five years, yeah. and um, Luis has been in the band twenty. Joel's been in the band twelve. Um, but you know, every once in a while, we'll go back and pull out a song or two that we hadn't played lately, and uh, and mix it up. But this time, we had—I uh, think we're playing seven new songs. So that's a lot from a new record for people who expect to hear the old songs do, do, do you do you hole up in a studio when it actually comes time to to record the record yeah well what we did was the last two records were kind of made under uh, timing duress whereas in the past we'd re we'd learn yeah. the songs go out and play them live and then record them. yeah um for the last two albums we kind of did it the other way and learned them very quickly and recorded them very quickly we've always been quick but that was that was different. So this time it was um, we we learned the songs in two days and then recorded them in three days. Um, and you know we knew in advance what we were going to do, so we just went in and knocked them out. And that's kind of the way we've always done it. But we used to do them very quickly. Then we took a little more time. Now we're back to doing them very quickly again, just because we all have jobs and lives and. Uh, not as much spare time as we used to, but we all still want to do the band. <laughs> and I was at one point when we first got a website, I made a list of all of our shows because we played almost a thousand shows. You went through a thousand shows. Yeah. Just, and I, and oh, just for your own edification. Well, I had a list. I thought I'm going to put them on the website so that yeah. whenever I have a question about our shows, I can look okay. them up. Uh, and other people must have been handy when up. you're writing a book to at least have some of the yes, dates in front of you to yeah. be able to say, 
wait, when did we play Bakersfield? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was 97, yeah. so 96, whenever it was. Um, I, I have to imagine that the songs end up sounding a little bit different on record if you've never played them before. Yes. I prefer doing it live yeah. first, and um, I don't mind coming up with stuff in the studio. We did a little bit of that this time, but I, I think you get different results by doing by learning them in the studio first and uh, recording them before you do them live. I, I mean, I think we're a really good live band, so yeah. it behooves us to play them live. I'm, I mean, I'm happy with the results, but I think they're a little different than they would have been if we had done them the other way around. Are, are, you, are, you, uh, are you resisting the urge to get like a little like mellower in your old age? <laughs> I think the... It's interesting when people refer to Pansy Division as a punk band because yeah. it's partly true. And when I was, we were playing last night, I thought, yeah. yeah, it's a more punk band on stage. And it's contextual, too. I mean, a lot of it's kind of where you came from and, and when. Yeah. And I think that is important because there's so many definitions of punk now. Yeah. And if hardcore is your definition of punk, then we suck because <laughs> we don't do that. Yeah. And um, they're, you know, punk has a wide range of things. But I think nowadays the more interesting stuff that I guess you would consider punk is the stuff that absorbs all these other influences. And when punk began, there was no punk rock. So you began with outside influences and distilled them down. And then I think it got too narrow. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more interesting when you take what a basic punk sound would be and add things to it, whether it's diverse instrumentation or different tempos or... Um, uh, you know, different uh, a vocal approach. You know, how aggressive are you in doing your uh, in in tackling the songs? Yeah. Because I think you listen to a lot of the early punk stuff, which is really my favorite punk stuff, and it sounds a little bit tame compared to the louder, harder, crunchier stuff that came along. But that didn't necessarily make it better for me. What, what about subject matter? I mean, you know, there's, there's, I, I can't point to a song on the new record where anything is necessarily as maybe overt as it once was. Sexually. And, yeah. You know, there are three songs on the album that say fuck. <laughs> and, um, but none of them are like done in a sexual, yeah. Yeah. in a sexual reference. Not like bunnies where, you know, the line is fuck like bunnies. Sure. Fuck like bunnies. Um, it's a song we still do. So I think that the, um, the, the newer stuff is, I mean, we've always ranged from sort of carnal and uh, humorous to more introspective. And I think being older now, the introspective is tilted a little more and that's weighed a little more. But I think the new album's still fun, yeah. but it's not as dirty as it used to be. <laughs> and one of the things about that approach was... When we started, we really didn't know anybody. We'd never heard stuff like that before. Yeah. And then we did it. And uh, there were some songs sort of in that vein that could have been on the album that we didn't use, that we didn't decide to record. So it just felt more organic to make a more introspective record this time around. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of things, but... I think being older... I mean, I'm the only single one in the band. Yeah. A decade ago, I was the only one in a relationship. 
uh, but now I'm the only single one. So Chris married his partner. Joel is straight, and he is married, and he and his wife have a kid. Uh, Luis is in a long-term relationship with his boyfriend. Um, and that actually is one of the, I think, contrasts of the record is that Chris's songs are pretty happy, and mine are less so. <laughs> But some of them are. But um, is that a direct re- reflection of where you are in life? It kind of turned out that way. But yeah. some of the songs, I mean, this is the part about doing an album every seven years. The last album, That's So Gay, came out in 2009. Yeah. And the one before that, Total Entertainment, came out in 2002. Before that, we'd done six albums in six years. But um, some of the songs on the new album were written a long time ago. But we... I mean, we have a surplus of materials. Like, what are we going to do for the album? Which songs seem to fit best thematically as an album? So that's kind of what we went for. So, so you're, you're so old. not all of the ones that are kind yeah. of downers are, you know, recent. <laughs> so you've been depressed for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, but uh, I, I, yeah, but yeah. you know, things go up and down. But but you uh, you hold on to things. You hold, I mean, not things but like emotional things, but you hold on to songs for for that long. I mean, we records. hold on to them really just because we don't have the opportunity to yeah. make records or get together and learn new songs. If we had time to get together and learn new songs, we'd have time to record them, too. It's just a matter of the amount of time we have together is really limited. Mm-hmm. So at, at some point, I, I decided it's time for me to make a solo record. I've never done one in 25 years because the band's always been a good outlet for the things I've written. But I realize now that there's... There's songs we're never going to get to that I think are high-quality, top-notch mm-hmm. songs. So at some point, I'll get around to doing them myself with a different band. I, I also have to imagine that just at a certain point, um, and I mean, this happens to most most musicians, or at least like most, you know, um, uh, introspective musicians with, with some sense of themselves that like at some point, like maybe you don't necessarily want to still be singing the sexually explicit stuff, you know, that it's not really what you're thinking about as a person. And maybe it, maybe it, maybe it feels weird at a certain point to go out on stage and, and to sing it. Yes and no. I mean, the just because the new album doesn't really have anything like that, yeah. you know, we still play 20 Years of Cock, which <laughs> was on the previous album. And, you know, the opening line of that song is, I'm getting older but I'm getting bolder. Well, yeah, I'm aging, yeah. but I'm still raging. I'm getting grayer, but feeling gayer. Yeah. So it's it's a matter of, um, I guess, context. I, we're still singing about it, but one of the things I think that was harmful to us is that people got this idea that we did this one thing, and yeah. we never really did, but it was... but. In fairness, it was the thing, the sort of funny, outrageous, sexually explicit song that really hadn't been done before. And it's kind of put you on the, the map. Put us on the map, and that's what we wanted to do was yeah. something we hadn't heard, which is an out band singing uncensored and unfiltered about these things. Um, so we've done those songs, and we still play them. Mm-hmm. But we now think, well, where are we really at in our lives? That's not really what we're preoccupied with so much anymore. But we've always written relationship songs, though a lot of the songs are about longing. And I think those are universal songs. Growing up and hearing songs which were always, you know, male-female, I felt, well, I think even though we're singing about explicitly gay stuff, I think that open-minded listeners can translate that the same way I could, uh, but just do it in reverse. 
and I think that's why we have a lot of straight fans. I mean, I, we started out with a lot of gay fans, but a lot of teenage fans because we were on Lookout Records, which had, you know, Screeching Weasel and Green Day <laughs> and um, Operation Ivy yep. and all these bands that had real appeal to teenagers. And then when we got on there, it was kind of like, oh, we're a bit older. These kids have heard us, though. They're hearing us in context with these other bands and... And, you know, a lot of them really got into us. Um, I think I lost my train of thought here where I was going with that. Well, no, you know, I remember I remember being a, as, as I mentioned to you earlier, I grew up in the East Bay, and I remember being like a 12-year-old and like flipping through the catalog or back when they had that little storefront on yeah. a Telegraph. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and going through all of the albums, and then, you know, there's you have an album cover with it. A guy jacking off on, on the front, the, uh, the forty-five. Yeah, I mean, was was there was there ever a sense like maybe let's not lead with this, you know, if if we really want to take this to the next level? We weren't trying to appeal to underage kids, but once we realized they were listening to yeah. us, we thought, well, why should we change? Yeah, um, we did change the subject matter a little bit in that a song like "Deep Water" is me trying to. So after the, we put out the first album, we didn't know who our audience would be or if we'd even have one. And then when we got around to writing songs for the second album, I wrote Deep Water thinking, okay, teenagers are listening to us. What are we, as part of our audience, what are we telling yeah. them? And um, so that was my uh, imagining what I, you know, a retelling of what I felt like when I was in high school. Oh, I know what I was getting to a minute ago. So, like, we had we had gay fans and then sort of Lookout Records fans, um, younger fans. And then after the Green Day thing hit where we got to open for them the year that Dookie became big, uh, suddenly our audience was really young, yeah. really straight, 90% straight. And then over time, that's eroded. So it's hmm. probably a predominantly gay audience now. But for... But so many people who heard us with Green Day are still our fans. And it's interesting to look at our audience because we played with Green Day in 94 and played like 40 shows with them and, you know, played arenas. So thousands, tens of thousands of kids got to see us. And our audience now, there aren't a lot of people under, say, 32. So there are a lot of 12-year-olds in 1994 watching Green Day. So it's filtered down some. Yeah. But uh, it's, you know, mostly people who got Green Day at the time and have still continued to pay attention to music or like that style. It's, 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 it's probably a little more difficult to contextualize for most people at this point, you know, outside of s- certain areas, maybe, you know, in, in the Midwest or the South as far as the U.S. goes. But how um, and I had mentioned this to you on, on one of the, uh, the uh, toward the beginning of the email thread that. Um, I went to one of those shows. The uh, you guys played uh, Oakland, oh, the Kaiser Auditorium. Kaiser Auditorium. Shows. I was at yeah. that show, and my dad took me to the show. And I, I guess I was like twelve at the time. And it's, you know, it, it might be in hindsight difficult to contextualize like how radical that seemed at the time. Yeah, I mean, I think that gay has become more normal yeah. in society in general. But um, I think being there was really important because. I don't know what it's like in the Bay Area growing up as a kid, but I know in a lot of parts of the country, the types of sex education they got, the types of health education they got, 
didn't really wasn't really honest about um, sexuality. It was a fear-based kind of curriculum and wasn't talking about how to prevent from uh, yourself from, from getting something like HIV. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just warning saying, this is bad and you shouldn't do this. And um, After the Green Day tour, we got letters from all over the country of kids kind of reporting back to us saying, hey, it was really great seeing you with Green Day. My high school... Uh, you know, there's someone who came out at my school, and I've got a really anti-gay history teacher, and our sex education class is crappy, so it was interesting to monitor. So I felt like we were giving them information that they should have gotten yeah. that they weren't getting, and that's why, for a long time, we included uh, information on the inside of our CD and album sleeves about how to, how to use a condom, how to prevent yourself from getting HIV here HIV here are helplines you can call if you're worried about you know your sexuality or anything else if you're a kid or you're a teenager and you want help so I thought we're singing about a lot of sex so let's contextualize it let's give let's give them the idea that it's it's bigger than than just somebody singing about fucking another guy. Well, and, and you got that sense after you started getting these letters from people and realizing that there were, you know, curious and questioning people out we there. We actually did that for the first album, mm. thinking that was something we should include. Yeah. Because we wanted to be a pro-sex band at a time when uh, sex could kill you. So let's be, let's give these yeah. these horny songs. But, you know, people are still horny whether there's a HIV epidemic or not. Yeah. So let's let's show people how you can protect yourself I, I wonder i wonder if this is like a, a good or a bad thing you know when we talk about kind of the way it's been normalized um you know that the, the only like my one strong memory from that entire show and it wasn't it wasn't anything green day did it was you know it was the james bondage routine of like <laughs> coming out with the with the like the giant sean connery cutouts yeah um and, and you know is is there the potential that that works against kind of like normalizing it if you're going completely in in that direction i think well pansy division for me was an outgrowth of having been in act up and i was talking to somebody uh actually a gay guy who is doing a video for us from the new album he's 24 he's mm-hmm. a really great guy but he had never heard of act up which if your listeners haven't it was a uh direct action protest group very grassroots he was born a year after the band formed yeah yeah <laughs> just just for context right <laughs> so you know this is around the late 80s yeah. early 90s act up protested the government's inaction on the aids crisis and was very effective and uh but you know like a lot of protest movements uh it imploded after a while mm. for various reasons which made me very sad because I thought if we can't agree, it benefits our enemies. But that's that's how it kind of ended up. It imploded around 92, 93, or lingered on in a kind of useless form. When ACT UP ended, I thought, wow, one of the things I learned from ACT UP was pushing the envelope was helpful. Mm. So if you do something that's really radical and maybe beyond the pale, it it 
pushes the envelope. It pushes the edge of things. So you think that this is the radical edge. Then if it gets further yeah. out and more radical, then people who are not as radical as you can kind of follow in your footsteps and take a more progressive position. Mm. And I thought with Pansy Division, I'm just going to be unapologetic about these things and just try to be as honest as possible and let it so be so that where we're coming from doesn't seem so alien or strange, especially to people who are not gay or to kids who uh, are questioning their sexuality and haven't come out, or allies, because we have a lot of allies who are straight. So Pansy Division is a rock band, yeah. and Pansy Division has a social aspect to it and a, a small p political aspect to it. But we're a rock band, and I think when we get interviewed, we often talk about the subject matter and the social context, but not mm -hmm. about the music. Yeah. And I think we wouldn't have gotten this far sure. if the music didn't hold up. Yeah. So for the new album, some of the reviews we've gotten have said things like, wow, it's 1995 again. Yeah. <laughs> it's like time stopped. And I don't agree with that, but because uh, I think we've evolved. Yeah. I mean, we're pretty poppy and punky sounding in the beginning, but we've always been melodic, even though we're not always as crunchy as we used to be. I think we still keep the tempos fairly fast, but not, you know, thrashy fast, but I think we we're, we write really catchy songs, and we play them with a sort of combination of jangly and crunchy guitars. Joel plays a Gibson guitar through a Marshall amp. I play a Fender Strat through a Fender amp. Those are two things that... Those are two different sounds. And when it was just as a trio, where it was really a more basic menu of sound options... Um, you know, it was more jangly punk. Now it's got a little harder edge in some ways. We had another guitarist, Patrick, mm -hmm. in uh, from between 97 and I think 2004, um, who added a lot of sort of cheap trick style and Beatles style um, lead playing. Yeah. And I think that we definitely get credit for our stance on things. I think we're underrated as music. And um, hmm. I listen to a lot of music. For years, I worked at Amoeba Music in San sure. Francisco. It's one of the best record stores yeah. in the country. It's a f former bowling alley. Former, I used to bowl there. It actually, I, I just I noticed first I was, moved to San Francisco. I was there the other week, and it actually they they've still got the marquee up on top. They do, they do. And given the way the record business is, it may become, <laughs> it may a, become bowling a bowling alley, alley again. again. Who knows? <laughs> people people might not always need records, but they'll always need bowling. <laughs> so the. Uh, um, the thing about working at Amoeba is I was yep. really exposed to a lot of stuff and had the option of grabbing a CD or a record and putting it on and listening to it. So I was really behind in terms of using the Internet as a way to find new music. But I left there in 2009, so I'm listening to music constantly, mm -hmm. listening to new stuff. And naturally, I compare my band to things that I hear. And um, there's always great new stuff out there I really love a guy from San Francisco named Tony Molina who had been around for a while before I actually had heard of him he's on Slumberland he's mm. had an album out and he's got a new single coming out I think he is just great he combines um, 
um, sort of teenage fan club style mm. indie rock with sort of feedbacky punk style, but also a bit of hard rock a la Thin Lizzy. Uh, his songs don't really say too much, they're very simple, but his songs are all a minute long. So his album, his last album, Distant, wait, was Distant Dismissed? Um, was, I always forget the title, uh, is I think 11 and a half minutes long, and it's a great album. I play it over and over again. So I'm always on the hunt for something that I think is really a good, a well-written song played in a exciting and... Um, uh, exciting and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I was going to say unique, but that's not really really the right word. So give me a minute here to think of it. Um, distinctive. Mm-hmm. A lot of stuff is not distinctive. Yeah. So I wade through a lot of stuff, going, "Oh, good guitar. Oh, you know, usually not good singer. That's usually the worst aspect of." indie rock bands and you don't have to be a great singer you just have to be distinctive and nowadays I feel like it's really hard to dig through and find distinctive stuff and often I'll find uh, a great song and then the band will have the whole album will sound like that one song or just you know that one song was picked out and put up on the internet because it really was the best song I find that a lot I think wow I love this song I bet the album's good Uh, most of the time it isn't so I feel like making a strong album means that you don't Xerox the same song 12 or 14 times, that you use different tempos, you use different kinds of textures and different moods. And I guess that's partly growing up in the 70s, even though I hated a lot of 70s album rock, that is something that we took with us as an ideal, and I think most bands fail at that. Even some bands I like fail at Mm -hmm. that so that's why in our minds we think we're really doing great stuff because we adhere to this ideal that i think maybe isn't as important to people as it used to be but that's me tooting my own horn here on the musical end it it must be it must be difficult though you know if you're putting out an album every seven years or however long it is between records to 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 do that to, to really evolve i mean obviously everybody's out in the world doing their own thing but to come together as a band and to push things forward is it more difficult when you basically never really see each other we well the thing is we've always there's never been a year where we didn't play shows in some years we've only played three or four shows but during that time we've all been listening to different kinds of music so when we get back together again people are bringing different influences Mm -hmm. in which sometimes causes uh, Chaos. <laughs> disagreements <laughs> sure. about things. Yeah. But, you know, bands always have them. I hope so, because that's how you that's how you work and decide what you should be doing. So, so you're working on a, a solo album right now? I have a whole bunch of songs, and um, they're not Pansy Division leftovers either. They're just yeah. the accumulation of having... An album, two albums in fourteen years, meaning sure. that you just and I, you know, I don't write all the songs either for the band. Well, I did you, when we first started out because it was yeah. really my band and my idea. But it's become more democratic as time evolved and people really became band members. When, when you when you say leftover, you mean that they're not like album rejects, or you mean they no. weren't written specifically for the band? I write songs, and most of them are for the band. There are a couple songs. Well, actually, so we did this album. And um, there's a 
political song on it called Blame the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's a funny, angry song. And when we turned in the album, our label boss, Jello Biafra, said, not this a, has got to be the single. Not a very political guy, Jello <laughs> no. Biafra. Yeah. But uh, he thought, this has got to be the single, Blame the Bible. Of course he did. <laughs> so we're like, okay, we weren't yeah. thinking of putting a 45 out. Yeah. But he said, so do you have a B-side? And we're like, no. We recorded, we, ju- we learned the songs we wanted to record for the album, and then we recorded them. We didn't. We didn't have time to do a lot of ex- do yeah. any extra stuff. We decided to include all the songs we recorded, fourteen songs. But then Jello wanted a B side, so we pulled out a song of mine called "Neighbors of the Beast," which uh, I think was in keeping with tweaking the religious uh, subject matter, and uh, and it's a funny song. And we've been playing it live. And so we had to do that as a B-side, and it took three months to do it because we all live in different places. So I started it, then we sent it to the East Coast, and Joel and Luis did their parts, sent it to Chris. Um, I think it sounds really good. I think it probably sound a little bit better if we had all done it in the same room at the same time. Sure. But, um, but that's a song that isn't necessarily a gay song. There are no gay references in it. Uh, us doing it gives it a certain context. But it's... It's about the idea that the devil is a ridiculous concept. I mean, people think that people who believe in God give God all this power. God is all powerful. You know, the, he created the world. But all this crap, all this shitty stuff goes yep. on in the world, but they don't blame God for that. They say, it's the devil. There's just this one guy who used to work with him who he can't control anymore. It's such a <laughs> cop-out. So that's what the song's about. So. That's something that I think fits in with some of the themes we sing about, but is a good example of what we didn't, what we weren't going to include on the yeah. album. But but you, you 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 said this before, and I've 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 read interviews where you, where you've said it in the past, where you say um, political with a small p. But th- this is not that. I mean, the, the single is not that. Blame the Bible is a political. We have a few. Yeah, we have a few that are directly political. I don't like doing them so much because I think they don't age as well. Mm. They are a good time capsule, but I don't think they age as well. This is a pretty evergreen topic, though. The uh... It is, but we also refer to the presidential election. Yeah. Uh, but I think, n- not, we don't name names, but I think in general it, it'll, it'll commemorate a, a certain moment. Sure. Um, is it is it easy for your will it be easy for the listener when I don't know what kind, what kind of time frame are you are you looking at for your solo album I haven't started it okay. I mean I thought a year ago I would start it instead yeah. Pansy Division kept me really busy this year so I I'm not in a hurry um, do, do you think people will be able to distinguish it you know obviously it's going to sound different because it's not the band but do, do th- thematically and and even musically will yeah. there be a clear distinction I think it'll be I think it'll be more diverse musically not because Pansy Vision can't be but nowadays we don't really have the time to do a lot of experimenting yeah. so I'm going to make this record at home with my friends and I've asked a lot of people to play on it and they've all said yes which makes me very happy so um I've never made a record that way, like a little bit here, a little bit there. I've always been, write the songs, rehearse the songs, play them live, and then go in and knock them out. So this will be different. 
so you, as you said before you've been the band has been playing at least every year you know if not if not super consistently but do you, I, 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 I get this thing and what I do where you know people are like oh you're still doing that yeah like they like the, this podcast is a good example you know they had heard an episode like a year or two ago <laughs> and they're like oh that's st-. and I'm like yes every single week of my life I have been thinking about this show and it's just been going on constantly I mean do you do you, do you ever get that feedback from people of like oh you guys are still or 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 are people looking at the 25th anniversary as being kind of a reunion tour in a sense. Some people seeing it that way. Um, one of the things about the band is that we have fans, but we don't have a huge amount of fans. We have a loyal, dedicated following, mm-hmm. and we know a lot of these people because they've been writing us uh, for years, and they've been coming to shows for years. So we know a lot of our fans, and if we were a bigger band, we wouldn't be able to do that. But, you know, we can still sell a few thousand copies, yeah. so we're able to make records. But I think when we were at our biggest, I mean, when we were biggest, we still were selling about 25,000 copies. Those early Lookout records sold 25. And for us, that was punk rock gold. It's like $25,000 means we can spray paint a gold record and <laughs> glue it to our wall and say, punk gold. You have enough money for spray paint? <laughs> we did have enough money for spray paint, but we didn't do it. Yeah. But we could have. That was a big success in our minds. And then as the 90s went on, um, you know, making six albums in six years is a lot to ask of people. And I think people, A, got used to us being there and then got some people got burned out. And also the numbers spiked because of the Green Day thing. And that was yeah. bound, to, uh, bound to change. But, you, but there was never a point when, when you felt like this is kind of going to be the end or we're not going to keep doing this? I thought we were going to stop in 2006 because Chris had gone back to school and he really couldn't play any gigs. I yeah. think we played just three gigs that year and, and we were barely able to do those so I thought if, if you know if Chris doesn't want to be in the band anymore there's no more band if I don't want to do it there's no more band so um, uh, but no we that was the thing oh, well when we did that so gay we started it in 2007 it came out in 2009 but when we started it I said to the other guys look I've got two songs that I think are great Pansy Division songs, and I want to record them. Mm-hmm. And if the band isn't able to do it, I want to record them with some other people because I think they should be out. I wasn't going to call it Pansy Division. But um, they were like, no, we want to do this. So we went in and did four songs. And it was so much fun. We just kept going, and over the next year we made an album. So I, that's when I thought it was going to end because we did a best of in 2006 because I thought we're not going to make any more records. Uh, we put out the essential pansy division, yeah, yeah. and uh, and that's when I wrote my book. Because by the end of the two thousands, I thought, oh, Thank okay. You. By the end of the two thousands, I realized it had been fifteen years since we broke through, and it was before the internet became a a deal. You know, hardly anyone was on the internet in nineteen ninety four. It was just really starting to rise yeah. up, but. Um, if you were doing stuff before the internet, which, you know, queercore was pre-internet, zines in the 90s were a big deal, stuff wasn't on the internet. So if you were doing stuff that happened pre-internet, you weren't, people weren't able to search you. People weren't able to find this stuff. So I thought, I need to write a book. I need to remind people that this stuff happened, not yeah. just for me and my band, but that we came out of this moment where suddenly a lot of gay people thought, 
we should form a rock band because we're not being representative. We grew up with this music. We love it. Why shouldn't we play it? Why should we be, why should we not be out with it? And, you know, it became a micro-genre, and all these micro-genres now are how the music scene is. It's so sliced and diced, and it's hard to find a center that, any, that everybody can agree on the way that you could agree on things in the past, or at least have knowledge about. So when you refer to something, you know, people will know what you're talking about. Nowadays, we're, it's all kind of balkanized. That helps a band like us to find a niche, but overall, I think it... It sort of balkanizes the scene. We're not hearing what each other hears. Yeah. We don't know what other people are being really inspired by. And that leads things, music to spiral off in different directions, which is creative and interesting and cool. But at the same time, what is your center? And how can music be something that can unify people if we can't even agree on you know where to start like what are mm-hmm. the basics where where does this music come from and it's i mean it's it's obviously easier to keep in touch with that when you're all together in a specific scene and when you're all yeah. actually touring out there and interacting with people on a yeah. you know daily basis i mean i miss touring sometimes having just done a tour for a week we used to go out for 6 weeks yeah um going so you got good, you got good feelings not like oh no this shit again kind no, of no I, I didn't have that at all i mean on the first day of our tour i was like wow I'm on tour again. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I was always the one who liked touring the most. So that hasn't changed, mm. I think. What, what do you like about touring? <laughs> I liked waking up in a different town every yeah. day. Um, I liked the fact that I could visit. You know, we'd do a circuit, and I'd visit people. Mm. And I'd get to see them once a year or twice a year or every so often. And I made friends all over the country. So when we were first starting out, we you know, were always asking people at shows, can we stay at your house? And we really couldn't afford to stay in hotels very often. And that developed a friendship network. And we just stayed in Boston with a friend of mine who I've known for... Th- I've been staying at her house for 32 years. Hmm. I met her when I had the band before I had Pansy Division. And we're, we're still friends and... Uh, we have a great time, and she has a wonderful house, so we go and stay there, and she loves to host uh, host us. She used to host a lot of bands, but I'm the last one <laughs> who is still, still doing touring. This. I refuse to stop. So I, I also used to have, we used to travel in a van that had a loft in it. So we'd have a, a bed on top, mm. and then underneath we'd have our equipment. So you couldn't see it from looking in the van. And I used we would have such long tours, which were arduous. It wasn't always fun, but I would come home from tour, and I would wake up in bed thinking I'm still asleep in the back of the van. That's how I saw the country. That was travel mm-hmm. for me, and um, and I I still love it. I mean, it, it sounds like if something is going to kind of end your your you know twenty five your run it's it's going to be external it's and it's not going to be you you're not going to be the person to initiate that you know what it is we all i mean i was in a relationship for a long time and now the others are in relationships and what happens is if you're single and you've got vacation time you can spend it on the band if you've got a partner yeah they're going to want to take a vacation with you if you allocate all your time towards your free time towards the band, that is going to cause dissension, no matter how supportive your partner is. 
did the book I mean it sounds like the timing of the book kind of felt like you were putting a bow on it or you know like as as you were working on it towards the end that that might be this might be kind of not only the definitive document but also the end of the band I thought it might be as I was writing it but by the time I finished it um, we had already recorded that so gay and the book came out the same week as that so gay and the other thing that happened in that same time frame was that Chris had gone, Chris had never gotten his undergraduate degree, so he was working, he had a job working for a film school. He was a financial aid officer, so they were, he was able to take classes. So he worked during the day, went to school at night at the school he was working at, and got his degree in film. He had been an audio editor before, then he became a video editor. So somebody at the, at the film school said, hey, we should do a film about your band. So he did the band film, the documentary about us, yeah. with Chris's assistance and with all of our help, um, you know, supplying footage and you know, photos and digging up stuff and being interviewed. So that was, we thought, we're documenting ourselves. We're a DIY band. We tried to document ourselves fairly instead of saying, oh, what a great band we are. Yeah. We were so super. But we just talked about what we did and why we thought it was important and um, that that the film played a lot of gay film festivals it really got around it's never streamed on Netflix but it's available uh, if you buy if you get discs through the mail mm-hmm. that's what people tell me so I uh, and then we finally put it up on YouTube I think in 2012 after we realized no one's ordering the DVD anymore our label put out the DVD uh, so that's us trying to document queer history. It happens to be queer history we're involved with. But we thought we're capable of presenting ourselves, uh, so let's do it. But yeah, we, when we were doing it, we we weren't sure how much future of the band there would still be. Yeah. But now that we've done 25 years, uh, I, we've got shows coming up uh, in January and in April. And then after that, I, I don't know. There's no plans after that. But I wanted to mention what's going oh, on in January. Sure, yeah. So in January, so we were, when we were on Lookout Records, you know, Lookout Records was something that a lot of people loved, especially teenagers in the 90s. And then the label had, a, for a lot of reasons, ended up going under. Some money issues. Management issues, <laughs> lots of stuff. Royalty issues. Plenty of stuff. Anything you can think of. <laughs> but it was benign neglect. I don't think it was yeah. intentional. Well, um, Gilman Street in Berkeley, uh, I'm not sure how it happened, but how it evolved, but there's going to be a festival of Lookout Records bands. I think there's 25 or 30 of them playing in Berkeley. I think it's the last weekend in December and then the first weekend in January. And I think that'll be exciting for a lot of people. Uh, For me, I always felt like we were a good match for a label in certain for the label in certain ways and not in others so i i i feel um uh, a fondness for a lot of the bands and then there's others that i, I kind of don't get it but um it encompassed a wide range of sounds even though i think they're remembered for being a pop punk yep. label but we're playing January 7th with the Smugglers and the Mr. T Experience who've gotten back together. Smugglers just got back together, uh, the Canadian uh, garage rock band, who are a really fun band. And they're friends of ours. We did a tour with them. 
Uh, so I'm really excited to be playing with those bands, and there's a bunch of others, too, um, that I think is going to be really successful. It's, it, it's interesting, you know, it, it seems like, especially when people are talking about music, nostalgia is a bad word. Like, people love nostalgia in every other aspect of their lives. You know, all these movies are being reissued and everything else, but... Um, you know, I, I guess it's just maybe it's maybe it's the, the issue of getting older, but um, people seem to kind of like tr- try try to try to turn to to actively work against it. I mean, do you think? Obviously, there's going to be a big element of that, you know, on that tour when you're playing with all these bands. I mean, is is nostalgia necessarily a bad word? I don't think the bands on Lookout were overexposed. I think that it was an underground thing that was important to a lot of people. And I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I don't think anybody's doing it for the money. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're doing it for the Nobody's fun. Nobody's playing Gilman for the money? No. You're not <laughs> playing Gilman for the money. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the idea... I mean, in the old days. You're saying they're not cashing in. No. Yeah. But at the same time, they're there to... to have fun and do something that fans will appreciate. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I remember when Dazed and Confused came out. Uh, I think it was 92. That was, right, yeah. and I went to high school in the late 70s. Yeah. So that was the first time my uh, generation was being sold back to me as nostalgia. And I really hated that. I liked the film, but yeah. I'm like, hey, I went to high school then. I'm not represented in that film. Yeah. I'm not one of those types. Yeah. I don't fit any of those characters. So uh, I remember thinking, it's way too soon. You, yeah. This can't be, this can't be, I'm not ready for a nostalgia yet. Uh, but it's been 20 years, you know. 15 years, maybe? Mm. Well, I guess it was about 20 years for Dazed and Confused, almost. Yeah. I don't know. That, that always depresses I'm, me. I'm, that, that, <laughs> that math is super depressing when I think about that. Like, yeah. the gap between decades then and decades now. Um, if you, you had mentioned that the, the, the documentary was um, kind of like queer core as filtered through the bands or yeah. like scene filtered through the band, um, that that was the impulse, part of the impulse for making the documentary – what was and I know you worked on the book for a long time, like seven years. Uh, that's partly because I kept giving up on it. Okay. <laughs> but what was what was what was the initial impetus be- behind starting that? I had great tour diaries, and I thought oh, I bet people would like a book yeah. of tour diaries. So when I started out, I thought I'm going to put out my tour diaries and write a little something else about them. Then after I put them out there, well, like typed them up and and looked at them, I thought no, the tour diaries are a nice framing device, but that's really not what the book is about. Yeah. So what is, the, what is the book about? The book is about the history of the band and how we, yeah. uh, you know, like how we came to form this band and what we did, uh, why we did it, and what we encountered. One of the things I say in the book is that, and about our adventures, one of the things I say in the book is that when we started... We thought, oh, my God, we are lambs for slaughter going out to far-flung parts of the country being an openly gay band with no apologies. And what we found out was that things had actually changed a lot and were changing a lot. The amount of trouble we had in 
you know, 25 years, you know, people being abusive at our shows or causing a, putting us in dangerous situations, I could count, I think, on one hand. Now, when you opening for Green Day, (laughs) opening for Green Day was a very mixed reaction, but there were barriers between us and the audience. Physical barriers. Physical barriers, which was very important. Yeah. Um, They weren't that far away. They could throw things at us. So I'm not really counting that. I'm counting, like, people wanting to beat us up. That's what we were afraid of. When we first did a tour, Chris's boyfriend at the time, Chris would call him every day at the same time to let him know we were okay because we were worried what we would encounter yeah. you know would people break our windows slash our tires yeah. those things didn't happen uh, maybe it's it's partly because we flew under the radar but you know you don't have to be that big to, to really uh, yeah invoke the ire of somebody yeah. so I, it taught us that I mean we were like God are we really going to go to the south and we found out there's really great people everywhere and that the attitudes uh, that might be prevalent are not everybody's attitude. So we we went wherever we wanted to, really. I mean, we played 40, the lower 48 states, we played 45. How, how many international shows have you done over the years? We did a lot in Canada. Okay. That's um, kind of international. Kind of international. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, what was different about Canada was in the 90s, when we went to Canada... They had a music channel that doesn't exist anymore called Much, Much Music. Music sure. Much Music was really welcoming. They interviewed us a bunch of times. MTV interviewed us once. Yeah. Um, they interviewed us a bunch of times. They even interviewed us in French on Musique Plus, the channel in Montreal, uh-huh. and gave us a lot of coverage. There was also a show called The Wedge that was their alternative music show that was on, I think, from 3 to 5 or 3.30 to 5 every weekday afternoon. So kids would come home from school and they would see the muffs and the super suckers and the fastbacks and mm-hmm. the, the shadowy men and you know, all, yeah. these, all these bands that would never get on MTV. And that led us to have a bigger following in Canada for a while. And we did play Canada with Green Day, too. That, that helped. But we did um, uh, Australian-New Zealand tour once, and that went pretty well, especially Australia. I was really into going to New Zealand because I like so many bands on the Flying Nun label mm-hmm. from New Zealand. But, but New, Zealander, New Zealand was more like England, and Australia was more like the U.S. Uh, people were more reserved in New Zealand. Australia liked us better. Um, we never got to Asia. We never got to Japan, though a lot of lookout bands went. I think I read something the, about them having to white out the uh, covers. Yeah, when we had a, a naked album cover, they had to either put a sticker yeah. or white out over the offending part because uh, that ran afoul of yeah. what you're allowed to do in Japan. But we went to Europe twice, and both tours are really exhausting. We went you know, all over the place. From, but you know, Italy and Spain and England were the best countries for us. The lookout sound was really popular in Southern Europe. So, we're, yeah, we're getting pushed out one more real fast, and I'm wondering, you know, given where where you grew up and, you know, some of the things that you were dealing with, whether you felt a sense of obligation to go out and, and tour to those places that weren't necessarily serviced by bands and music. Absolutely. We had trouble finding a drummer for years. We went through a whole bunch of them because... 
people wanted to be in the band but couldn't for various reasons. Some of the people that we used didn't work out musically. Some of them didn't work out personality-wise. Sometimes we thought, what's wrong with us? But then we've had Luis for 20 years, yeah. so it wasn't us. <laughs> uh, but until we really had Luis in the band, it was hard to tour as much as we really wanted to. Mm-hmm. And when we finally got Luis uh, and Patrick joined, we did a 100-day tour where we did as many cities in America as we could and tried to go to the places. Because you know, I grew up in Peoria, Illinois, yeah. and I lived in Champaign, Illinois for 10 years where I went to school. And I know that people remember if you come to their town. So we tried to do that. And we did do that. And it worked for a while. It worked to a certain extent. But um, after... The, the thing about taking so much time off is that now we can't tour as many cities as we want to and really make it yeah. financially viable. When we all had cheap rent in San Francisco and we're paying $350, $400 a month, <laughs> it was easier to yeah. get by making $200, $250 a night. Can't do that now. And, and we don't have the time. But I still, I still miss the days of hitting the road and going into cities that we'd never been to. We were being in the van this week talking about shows, we were reminded the one time we played in Sioux Falls, South Dakota and just had a fantastic show. So we have a lot of great yeah. experiences from through the years and I think that's part of what keeps us going. There you go. That was John Ginoli of the Pansy Division. Thank you so much, Tim, for taking the time to do that. He's somebody that I've been wanting to speak to for uh, quite some time. Um, in fact, since uh, since I read his book, Deflowered, My Life in the Pansy Division, uh, a couple of years back. Um, also, they're a band that I've been familiar with, with for, for a, a long time. Um, one of my uh, early rock and roll show-going experiences was, uh, like, like many people of my general age range was uh was green day at a show in oakland and the pansy division opened up uh my dad brought me to the show uh i think i kind of want to go back and ask him about his memories of the show uh i have very vivid memories of them playing james bondage and having uh, dancers walk around with giant sean connery masks um i think he thought it was funny i'm not sure i think he i think he was he was amused uh the, the fans of are a very were a very very are a very very funny band uh i had no idea what to make of it so it was a very very formative experience for me um as i'm sure it was for uh for, for many uh, suburban teams of my general age group uh, they're still going strong 25 years they're they're out touring right now new album is called uh, quite contrary it's on uh, alternative tentacles jill biafra's label uh really really wonderful as is all their stuff i highly recommend you check uh, them out if you've not heard them before um it's also really crazy, you know, in the in the, um, in the lead up to the interview, I went back and we listened to a lot of the early stuff, and it's just, it it's 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 nuts to think about how far we've come, you know, particularly in the last uh, the last ten years when it comes to you know this sort of subject matter in music, and they were uh, they were right there right there on the the, the cutting edge, so uh, th- so thanks so much, John, for taking the time to do that. Uh, thanks to you guys as always for listening to the program. Thanks to uh, to Brian for editing the show together. Uh, if you are a fan of the show, please consider sending us a little bit, of, a little bit of cash. A little donation would help a lot. Over on our Patreon, costs money to host a show. Costs money to pay Ryan to edit the show together. So uh, anything you could pitch our way would uh, certainly be appreciated.
appreciated. Uh, if you don't have any cash, just consider rating us over on iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Um, our Tumblr, that is the first and best place. You got all of your RIYL related information. The address is rylcast.tumblr.com. Our Gmail, if you have any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Uh, like us on Facebook. I think that's about all I got this week. So uh, thanks again to John for doing that. Really enjoyed that conversation. And uh, everybody else, stick around because we will be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.